Welcome back, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. It's another solo episode coming at you from Chris. Uh, just going to build off of the uh, solo podcast from before that was um, talking about my interest in religion, kind of where it comes from, uh, where it's gone, um, you know, as I've grown up and gotten kind of more and more interested in it. And um, this really is tied in pretty closely to uh, uh, the episode that uh, Kyle and I put out on psychedelics. Um, so I think where I want to begin is talking about reality. Now, this is something for somebody to be religious, you know, for somebody to have belief in um, any kind of supernatural stuff, you have to be flexible about um, your the way you think about reality. You know, you got to be flexible. You have to have room in there for some some crazy stuff. Uh, so what I w- thought I'd do today is talk about that. I want to talk about perceptions and our experiences in general. And I just kind of want to build a case for you. Um, none of this stuff is really going to be new to you, I don't think. Uh, but just putting it in the way that I'm going to put it, it kind of helps illustrate that um, that our perceptions, the things we experience, they really aren't what they seem to be. And, you know, as I drive that point home, what I want to you know, what what I want you guys to get from that is the idea that if reality isn't what it seems to be, then what in the heck is it? Um, so let's just dig right in. So really, the first question that I'm posing is, is it possible that reality is very different from the way we think it is? Is it possible? Um, when Kyle and I were talking about psychedelics and we talked about altered states of consciousness, you know, we were talking about specific examples. A lot of them were drug examples, but not all of them were. We talked about sensory deprivation, sleep deprivation, breath work, you know, different things that people do and have done in the past to get their, their consciousness to a different state. You know, maybe that's something as simple as lightheadedness or double vision or, you know, um, you know, maybe it's all kinds of things. Um, but the, the important thing is that those examples are different from our day-to-day reality. Um, is this probably a good time? I mean, if we're basically here talking about how reliable are our perceptions, you know, if it's, if it's possible to have a state of consciousness that's different from the ordinary state of a healthy person, whether that's drug-related or not, if it's possible to have a different type of experience... The question that comes to my mind is, well, which experience is right? Uh, which one is accurate? Is my, is my ordinary, healthy, day-to-day experience of the world, is that the real, the real way it should, it should be understood? Or is my crazy, trippy, psychedelic experience somehow more real? Is it reflecting somehow the way the world really is? And it goes back to that question I, I mentioned about, about perceptions. If, if reality is more than what we seem to think it is, you know, there's obviously room in there for these crazy psychedelic experiences. You know, what, what is that? You know, how reliable are our perceptions? Do they tell us anything real about the way the world really is? So you can imagine this veil of perception that hangs over our eyes, and we see the world the way uh, we do, and whatever's behind that veil, whatever's really there, maybe, maybe we don't really ever see, we don't really ever experience, or at least not the way... Um, you know, not, not, not in a true way, in some kind of illusory way. Um, and this brings my mind to Descartes. So this is a philosopher, a French philosopher. Um, you guys have probably heard of Descartes before. He's the guy that said, I think, therefore I am. 
And he, he's one of these early skeptics, and he talked about this stuff exactly. You know, he said, you know, is it possible um, that the things I experience are, are an illusion? Like, to what degree is it possible that everything I experience is bullshit? And this goes back to that, um, uh, that example Kyle and I talked about. It's the philosophical thought experiment called Mind in a Vat. So let's, let's, let's go through this exercise. So imagine this. Imagine you're a mind in a vat, your brain hooked up to electrodes, let's say. And the messages that are getting shot into your brain are making you think that you're who you are, that you're doing the things you're doing, that you've lived the, the, a number of years that you've lived, um, you've had the experiences you've had, and the memories you have and all that. But none of it is real. It's just being shot into your brain through electrical impulses from outside. So we can imagine like the Matrix type of a scenario. And Descartes, he did that. He said, you know, is it possible that I'm not really, you know, walking down the street, I'm not really eating lunch? Is it possible that's that's all illusion? Yes. Is it possible that other people don't really exist? That I'm talking to somebody or shaking hands with somebody or making love to somebody? And that's not really happening. Is that is that possible? Can I can I be skeptical about that? Yes, there's room for that. You could say, hypothetically, you're a mind in a vat, and all those things are getting shot into your brain from outside. So he did that. He did that as much as he could. And basically, it was devastating for him. He was like, there's really nothing I can rely on. Um, everything I think I know could, could be fake, could be an illusion. Um, and, uh, and he did that and did that and did that, and finally came to kind of the bedrock. He finally found a statement that he could make to himself, that he couldn't say was an illusion. And that statement was, I think, therefore I am. And that's basically what he was doing. He was sitting there thinking, what can I be skeptical about? Going through that list, the wheels and the cogs in his brain are turning. He can be skeptical of everything, he thinks. And suddenly it dawned on him that he's sitting there thinking, and he cannot say that it could be an illusion that he's thinking because he's sitting there doing it. He has an immediate experience of it. Um, so for him, that was the bedrock. He said, you know what? I, I might be able to doubt everything in the world, everything in my experience, everyone and everything, except for my thoughts. I can't wish those away because they're happening right now. Um, so this for him, this was the bedrock, you know, of, of, of the philosophy that, that he developed. Um, and so, and so kind of where, how this connects to our perceptions is this. If we can say, okay, we know we're conscious. We believe Descartes. We're, we're conscious. I, I get that. But what about the things we're conscious of? What, what about our perceptions? We, and we've already said that Descartes was not, a, was not a enthusiastic about saying that's something that, um, that we could rely on, really, in any way. So let's talk about a practical example. And this may seem a little silly, but this is something I thought about you know, like going way back, like, you know, to childhood. And the question is something like this. Do other people see color the same way that I do? Like if I see red, the thing that I see, is that, is that really what other people are seeing? Do they see that same color? Is it different? Is it a different shade, a different hue? Is it exactly the same as mine? Um, you know, I had no way of knowing that, but I was curious. Are colors the same to everyone? So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, suppose I see a flower that's red or a strawberry or something like that. And I say that it's red. Anybody around me who's looking at that is going to agree. And the reason is that, that we all speak the same language. 
You know, they're, they're going to see something that's red. They're going to call it red. Even if what they're seeing is green, right? Everything they see that's red to them looks green, but they're going to call it red because we're sharing the same language. What we're looking at the same thing and we're saying that's red. So we have this like shared symbols and, and, and you know, that's what language is. Uh, we developed language to give ourselves like a, a uniform set of symbols that we can use to kind of make sense to one another. Even if we have no way at all of knowing what the other person is perceiving or what they're thinking, uh, we kind of assume that they're seeing and perceiving the same way that we are or pretty close. Um, and that seems to be true because, again, we, we all speak the same language and it makes sense to us. But what about, what about somebody who's colorblind? You know, that person doesn't see colors the way that I do. Um, what about the, the rods and cones in our eyes? You know, the way that they're shaped, the way they're designed, it's different for everybody. And the shape of them um, determines the colors that I can see. So we all have, you know, a different, a different biological setup there. Going a little deeper than that, since we're talking about color, what about the, like, the spectrum of light? You know, it, it's more than just the visible colors. Um, you know, the, you've all heard the word ultraviolet and infrared. These are, these are different spectrums uh, above and below the area of, of, of light that we can see, the electromagnetic spectrum. So these aren't colors necessarily. You and I can't see them, uh, but they exist. Um, so, you know, so, somebody who's colorblind or somebody with a different shape, rods and cones, um, you know, even considering the spectrum of light outside of what we can see, these all kind of prove that our perceptions really are very limited. There are things going on that we cannot detect. Does that mean that they're not, that they're not there? Does it mean that they're not real? I, th I don't think we would, uh, we would agree with that. I think, no, the, those things are there. Those things are real. They're just invisible to me. And for that reason, you know, and for most of human history, we didn't know that. It was completely unknown to us. And the idea here is, unless, unless we can literally get inside somebody else's head to experience exactly what they're experiencing, we can never really know how similar it is to our own experiences. Um, it could be completely different. We can't, we can't verify our experiences because it can't get in somebody else's head to see if it, if it is what it seems to be. And this is something that, that Kyle brought up when he was talking about Aldous Huxley in the psychedelic episode. He was talking about um, uh, human beings as, um, um, what did he call them, uh, islands of consciousness, I think it was, something like that. And that's what we are. Uh, we're completely isolated from each other. You know, we don't have any way of knowing for real what, what somebody else is seeing or experiencing. Um, and, that, you know, that, and, that, and that's true. I mean, there's, there's, something, there's something important to that. So it seems that the best we can do uh, is assume that we're referencing the same things in the world, even if what, what we're experiencing is totally different. So there's something behind what we're seeing, let's say, um, that, that, you know, even if, even if what, I, what, you know, what bounces off that object and appears in my brain is different from somebody else, there is really something there that we're both referencing when we say that's red. Um, and that kind of gets to the point of it. It's, what is the thing behind the perception that we're seeing? You know, the message that we're, that we're getting back from it may be different. We don't have any way of knowing that. But is it true that there's something there that we're both seeing, even if we can't say for sure what, you know, what that thing is 
in, in truth. And it gets weirder because there's really no reason for us to suppose that that this sort of unknowable problem of perception stops with our with our eyes. I mean, it's it's true for all of our senses, the way that we see and smell and taste and feel. Um, I mean, that's no surprise. You guys have, you know, uh, friends or family that love things to eat that you could not stand or, or vice versa. Maybe you're one of those crazy people that, you know, likes anchovy paste or something and, and nobody can quite understand or, or hot food or whatever. Clearly, when we're eating, we're tasting things differently from other people for all the same reasons we talked about with, with the example of colors. So there's this unknowable problem of perception, and it, it extends across our entire experience. It's like our entire lives and everything in them are completely unknown to anybody but ourselves. And that, that's kind of an isolating thing and kind of a, um, you know, kind of a hard thing to say, but, um, but I think it's true. I think there's something about that that's true. So, so I, I just want to return to the question, you know, we have these... Um, altered states of consciousness that we experience. Maybe it's like a fever hallucination or, you know, somebody that's uh, got some real mental mental illness or the drug intoxication with the psychedelics that we talked about. So there's hallucinations and delusions and things like that. Um, and how do we know that those types of experience, because we know that they're possible, are any more or less true about whatever it is that that thing behind our perceptions that we're referencing? I mean, is it is it possible that our psychedelic state or our crazy fever state is uh, telling us something more about that object or something more true or more complete about the thing that we're actually observing kind of behind our perception, even though we can't know what that thing is. Is that possible? And as I'm saying this, I, I'm, I'm remembering a scene from a movie called uh, A Beautiful Mind, uh, a Russell Crowe movie. If you guys haven't seen it, it's, 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 it's a drama, but it's great. Uh, based on a true story about a guy who was uh, schizophrenic, but he's also a brilliant uh, professor, a mathematician, I think he was. And there was this scene in the movie where he's holding up his hands and he's asking, maybe his wife, I can't remember, um, how many fingers he's holding up. And to him, he, he's, his vision is a little bit, um, is a little bit uh, uh, narrowed and he can see um, multiple fingers. Like he can see a shadow or like a, like a double image of his fingers. So to him... He's holding up six fingers, not three fingers, and his, you know, his wife doesn't understand. And that's exactly the point I'm trying to make, is that you know, that man was schizophrenic. He, had, he was faced with a reality that nobody around him understood or could see. And he was desperately trying to, to explain to somebody what it was, and he couldn't. And that's that, that's that impasse between us, that, that, you know, that those island universes that, that Huxley was talking about that we are. Um, that's, you know, that's what, that's what I'm referring to. Um, all right. So where do we go from here? All right. So, you know, and again, I think what I was just, what I was just hitting at here is that it might be possible that there are things that expand, um, kind of the truth about our perceptions that are available to us in these crazy experiences that are possible to have, but that we don't have day to day. And that's something that we can't rule out. And, and so we're really talking about the difference between perception and reality. And the mystery, really, it only deepens as we become better and better at observing things. So, for instance, as our technology improves and we invented things like, like the microscope and the telescope, 
suddenly we we have access to uh, a part of reality that we didn't before. And the strangest part about it is that reality was always that way. We just didn't know it. We weren't aware of it. It was just invisible to us. And what I mean here is, um, we're you know we're our bodies. Let's say as an example, our bodies are like a an ecosystem. They're made up of you know cells. They're made up of uh, viruses and bacteria that are living in our stomach, helping us digest our food and all that sort of thing. Helping our our cells create energy. Um, you know, there's parasites in there. There's all kinds of things. And this whole like little universe that our bodies are, um, all those parts are there for a reason. They're functioning for a reason. They kind of make the whole thing tick. But we had no idea about that up until, you know, relatively recently in history. That was, that was something we didn't know. We always existed that way. We were always ourselves plus a whole universe of other things. And we just didn't know that. Now we do. Now suddenly, what's possible, you know, our idea of reality is expanded to include this crazy universe of microorganisms and, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of crazy stuff. And it gets weirder than that. I mean, with a, with a telescope and, and so forth, we, we learned that we exist in this, you know, infinitely expanding fabric of space and time. And we learned that our bodies are made up of, you know, atoms, you know, at the smallest level, these fundamental particles that really aren't even made of matter. I mean, they kind of are, but they're also convertible into energy. So these, these atoms aren't exactly material at all. They're, they're, they're actually just a form of energy. What, what the fuck is that? So suddenly we know, we know that as well. I mean, that, that, that almost extends our view of reality beyond, uh, you know, any sort of, any sort of anything we could have reasonably expected. It gets, starts to get magical all of a sudden. And if you believe in, you know, science, uh, you kind of have to go with me on that. You know, there, there's some stuff that's absolutely magical going on all the time that we're just sort of unaware of. And we've always existed that way. We've always existed that way. All right, let's go back to the topic of, uh, of infrared and ultraviolet. So we, we're talking about those parts of the electromagnetic spectrum that we can't see. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about possible perceptions. You know, is it is it possible to have perceptions that are outside of our kind of biology? Um, and I would say, um, of course. I mean, we can talk about things like echolocation. You know, a bat's going around using sound to figure out where things are and getting that getting that signal back, and is able to map kind of the territory with it. Uh, we have no idea what that must be like. Uh, what about like? Um, Certain animals like insects and fish that they don't have good eyesight. What they do have are antenna and things like that that will that will detect electromagnetism. Um, they're they're actually sensing something that's all around us all the time that we don't feel. We don't we don't experience it. So you might have a you know like a catfish or something going around on the bottom of the lake and it's using its little uh, you know sensors to, to touch around looking for food or whatever it is. And you can imagine that fish is swimming into this field and and it, it, it can feel, I don't know what it feels. Maybe it's some kind of resistance. Maybe it's some kind of vibration. I have no idea. That's the point. But they're feeling something. That they're noticing that there's something there that you and I will never experience. It's something other than anything we can experience. 
going back to that infrared um, and ultraviolet example is infrared is basically night vision. I mean, we've invented that. We can, we can put goggles on and, and we can see what that looks like. You know, but there are nocturnal animals that see that way. That's, that's what they actually see. Um, on the ultraviolet spectrum, um, they're like bees and butterflies and things like that. Um, that actually see an ultraviolet. So when they're when they're flying over a field of daisies, you know they're they're not seeing the colors of the flowers the way that we do. Instead, they're seeing they're seeing parts of the flowers glowing differently. They're, they're glowing to them, and it helps them to find the flowers they need to find. Um, can you imagine you know looking looking down the street, looking at the you know the people walking up and down, looking at the shopping centers, looking at uh, the cars driving by, and just certain parts of that are glowing to you, and there's some reason why they're glowing, and it gives you information that you didn't have about it. Like we don't even really understand what that might be like, but that's what I mean. So so is it possible that there are perceptions that are possible that we simply aren't able to see or experience? Of course there are. So we know two things so far. We know that reality uh, is is far deeper than what our our sense experience tells us, what our perceptions tell us. We also know that it's possible to have other perceptions, other than the ones that we have, other senses that give us other information about the world that is completely invisible to us. So, so there is other information out there to be had about the universe that we simply don't. No, it's invisible to us. So what else, what else might be invisible to us? You ever wonder that? What else? All right, so what I thought I'd do next is give you guys a little bit of a historical overview of like human beings attempt to try to find what, you know, what's really behind our perceptions? What, what is the world really? Can we get past our perceptions and, ha- and find any information about what's really there behind our perceptions? And this is something that we've never really been without. You know, human beings have been doing this forever. So I'm going to go back to basically the beginning of recorded history because that's all I have access to. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you beginning with Plato. So we're talking you know, um, 400 to maybe you know, 350 BC, something like that. So Plato, um, you know, again, uh, one of the early uh, earliest philosophers, um, he talked about something called the world of forms, the world of forms. And the way he got to this idea was looking at any object, observing any object in the world. And then I'll take an example um, of beauty. And he'll say, okay, there's this idea of beauty. And in the world, we see that reflected in things. You know, maybe it's a sunset or or a, a beautiful song, or, or somebody's smile, or something. So all of these things we would see, and we'd say, you know, that's beautiful. And so Plato would say, well, what is it about the sunset, and the smile, and the song? What is it that's beautiful? Because it's something common between those three things. What What is it? What exactly is it? Can you tell me? Because I, I'm not sure I can put words to that. What is it that's common about those three things that you call beautiful? And that's exactly what Plato said. Doesn't, it doesn't exist in the world. It exists in this world of forms, this perfected realm, something like that. And we're only seeing it reflected in the world. 
Um, and, you know, it's hard to talk about what he means by reflected in the world, but something like whatever reality is, is sort of uh, reflecting itself in, in the material world. Um, and he uses an analogy or, or an allegory called the cave. So many of you guys have, have probably uh, encountered the story, but for those who, who haven't, I'll just really briefly tell you. He, Plato describes like people that are um, they're locked up, they're tied up, they can't move, they're in a cave. And all they can see, they can't even move their heads, so all they can see is directly in front of them. And there are like shadow figures that sort of dance on the wall in front of them. And they've never been out of that cave. So to them, the shadows on the wall are all that exists. To them, it's just the cave and the shadow things. There's nothing else. Um, everything else is invisible to them. So this is the, this is the idea. Um, and, then, and then eventually, it looks like long story short, um, somebody breaks free. And that person sees that, yeah, they're in, they're in a cave, but there's more to the cave than what they can see. And they climb up above the shelf where they are, and they can see that the shadows on the walls are really coming from these, like, uh, cutouts, like these cardboard cutouts. And there's a light, a fire behind them that are casting the shadows on the walls. So the thing that I thought was the, was the most real thing, apart from the cave, these, these dancing shadows, they're really nothing at all. They're just a, an illusion. Uh, the guy continues on and eventually, you know, goes past the fire. He sees a light at the uh, entrance of the cave. He he climbs his way out. And he emerges into the real world, and suddenly, he's blinded by the sun and blinded by, you know, this this tremendous reality that he was completely unaware of. And can you can you imagine that situation? You know, can you imagine how completely stunned and overwhelmed you'd be? And and so this guy was. Clearly, he's like, this whole world exists. And I thought it was just shadows on the wall. And he uh, goes back into the cave and tries to tell the other people that are tied up there what he's seen. And nobody has any idea what he's talking about. They think he's a crazy man. Wouldn't you? And this is exactly my point. If there really are things beyond our ordinary perception, if there really is an ultimate reality there, if I saw it, and tried to come here on this podcast and tell you about it, you guys would think that I was losing my mind. And maybe I am, maybe I'm not. But in, but in, the, but in the Plato's example, that was the truth. And we see this sort of idea, this the world of forms idea. We see it, you know, in the East as well. I mean, going, going way back to kind of the oldest religion in the world, uh, Hinduism, out of India. You know, they've got a series of holy books, but the important ones are the Vedas and the Upanishads. And in the Upanishads, this is this was an oral tradition that goes back a long, long way. I mean, Hinduism goes back, you know, I think like 5,000 BC. It goes back a long way. Uh, the Upanishads were written down right around between 600 and 200 BC, so, so sometime before Plato and then a little after. And in the Upanishads, they see lots of awesome stuff. Uh, the Upanishads, if you, if you, if you take any of my reading recommendations, I would recommend the Upanishads and the Tao Te Ching. If if you can read those two things, you'll have you'll have an excellent idea of what I'm talking about. Um, but in the Upanishads, they, there's a word they use. It's called Avidya, and Avidya means knowledge of the universe. So just the things that we ex- encounter and experience in the world. But there's also something called Vidya. And vidya is knowledge of the changeless reality. So in the Upanishads, they, they absolutely talk about 
whatever it is behind our perceptions. And even if we don't know anything about it or can't know anything about it, we know it's there and it's called vidya, okay? The knowledge of the changeless reality. So I'm just going to fast forward really quickly to kind of the beginning of modern science. And I'm going to talk about a philosopher named Immanuel Kant. This, so we're talking about like the 1780s when he wrote his kind of masterpiece. And he talked about exactly the same thing. He talked about uh, what he called phenomena. And phenomena are things as they appear. Those are our experiences. And then he talked about noumena. And noumena are things as they really are, the things in themselves. And this is what Kant's referring to, is if there's an object in the world, um, there's my perception of the object. And then there's the thing in itself. And I'm never really able to know exactly what that is because I'm, I'm only ever encountering that through my perceptions. And it's some, it's some kind of a veil, like I said. So something that I'm trying, I'm trying to see through and it's just not clear. And then we see this even in, in modern physics. I mean, this goes back to Isaac Newton. So that's like the, you know, late 1600s, early 1700s. But it goes all the way through to modern uh, quantum physics, which began in the 20s and 30s, and it continues today. And this is the idea of Newtonian mechanics versus quantum mechanics. So just like the um, phenomena of uh, Kant, Newtonian mechanics describe the way the world seems. So, you know, uh, I'm just thinking about this documentary we talked about once already called The Code. Uh, it's on Netflix if you want to check it out. But it's a mathematician. He's talking about, you know, uh, the laws of motion and, and uh, Isaac Newton's, you know, formulas. And he puts a um, like a beach chair down uh, on the ground and, and he's sitting right in front of this um, ramp, basically. And he, uh, you know, and I'm probably conflating this now with Neil deGrasse Tyson's Cosmos because I've been watching them both. But in any case, he puts a giant heavy boulder down on this ramp and he lets it roll off and launch off this ra- ramp directly towards him where he's sitting in this chair. And it lands heavy and hard right in front of him. So he doesn't actually uh, get hurt or anything. Uh, and the point is that he knew from from basically Isaac Newton, he knew exactly what that thing weighed. He knew the angle of delivery. He knew how fast it was going. So he knew exactly where that ball was going to land. He knew he was in no danger, even though if you and I were sitting there, we would have been, we would have been, we would have flinched. I'll put it that way. And then there's, and then there's quantum mechanics, um, which, which came out a little later. And it, it, rather than describing the way the world seems, quantum mechanics describes the way the world actually is. And it gets really, really strange. But there's a, there's a guy named Brian Greene. He's a physicist. And he's kind of like a, like a popular culture physicist, like, like Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's one of those guys that uh, he does a lot of documentaries and he's written a lot of books for like, you know, popular consumption. And he says this, he says, if you use Newton's ideas in the realm of particles, you get wrong predictions. So this is what I mean about Newtonian mechanics uh, kind of approximating the way the world is, where quantum mechanics really describes the way the world is. And the idea here is if you did that same experiment with a particle instead of a, you know, a, a giant boulder, that you wouldn't be able to tell where it was going to land, and you might get crushed to death. That's what he's saying. So let's talk about quantum quantum physics because quantum reality is, you know, for those people who haven't dug into it, um, it's bonkers. It's it's really difficult to make sense of. Um, but um, all of the best and brightest scientists, uh, the physicists, the mathematicians, you know, these these people all agree that this is true. 
So we'll talk through some of this stuff. But um, what quantum reality is, is very different from what we see day to day. You know, in the quantum world and on the very smallest scales, matter, you know, particles, they, they flash in and out of existence. They're here one moment, they're gone the next. Also, those particles aren't really matter necessarily. Those particles are really just some form of energy. Um, and then also matter, matter and energy, they don't exist really, um, you know, in the way that we think of. They, they exist in something called a, called a probability wave. So these particles, they're not just particles, they're also waves. And, and you can't tell where the particle is and, and how it's moving at the same time because it's really just this cloud of, of possibility that surrounds this, the, the center of the atom. It's very, very strange. So we learn all of this stuff about quantum physics, about the way the world is at the most fundamental level. And it's nothing at all like what we experience every day. And there was a guy in the 20s and 30s named, uh, named Niels Bohr. He's, he, was, he worked with Einstein and some of those people. He was one of these early quantum physicists. And he said something just unbelievable. He said this. He said, everything we call real is made up of things that cannot be regarded as real. What? And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about when you zoom down on the, on, on the you know, quantum level to look at the, the particles, the, the, the most fundamental particles that things are made of, that they behave in ways and they do things that we just don't understand. So it seems there, there's really never been a time when human beings didn't, didn't recognize the limits of their perceptions and then desire to know what really lay behind them. You know, we only have an approximation of, of the way the world is. We're only getting some information through our senses, but it's not everything. And maybe it's, maybe it's completely wrong. You know, we don't really know. So let's talk about that thing behind, behind our perceptions, the thing I'm calling the ultimate reality, whatever it is that lay behind our perceptions. What, what is it? What is it really? You know, I don't know. I don't know, but it's been given the name God. And the quest for God has been myth, ritual, religion, philosophy. And, and today it's, it's science. It's, it's this search for a grand unified theory that the physicists are looking for. You know, it's the same thing. So this religious exercise and even the, even the, the scientific exercise or pursuit, it's trying to figure out what reality really is, trying to reach beyond that veil of perception and figure out what things really are. So what I want to do now is I want to introduce a character. Um, he was a uh, philosophy professor at Princeton, like in the turn of the century, like 1901, I think it was. He wrote a book called Time and Eternity. A guy's name was W. Stacy, um, And I, I love that book. Uh, you know, it made me think about this in a whole different way. And he was doing the same thing. He was searching for ultimate reality. He wanted to know what that thing is behind our perceptions, what, what really exists. And this is what he said. Um, he said that, uh, that you know, and again, he's, he's looking at this as the quest for God. And he says that all religious feelings can be traced to something that's latent in the psychology of, of everyone. So we have this ability, we have this capacity to have a, a, a certain type of experience. Um, and if and anybody who's ever had it um, understands um, the religious sort of message, it's it's this type of experience is where religious feelings come from. 
Um, and, and again, the potential, the potential to have this experience, we, we all have that ability. The, the experience is what Kyle and I were talking about the other day. It's the mystic experience. It's this, the thing that it's possible to have from, from, you know, from psychedelic experiences, but also other, other sorts of things. It's that crazy becoming one with the universe feeling that, uh, you know, your identity just falls away and you, you are unified with everything and your experience. It's, it's an unbelievable experience. And, uh, and that's what it is. I mean, it, it basically tells you that everything is, is one. It also makes your, like, ordinary thoughts about subject and object, like myself versus the things I'm experiencing, or even space and time, it makes those things seem, seem meaningless. Like, you know, it really disturbs the way that you generally think is, is you know, the way the world is. So it kind of does. It kind of pulls back that veil of perception, and it shows you what that ultimate reality is. But, but here's the kicker. When you become... All, one with the universe, when you become everything all at once and you, and you lift that veil and you have that mystic experience, what you see behind it is a, is a mirror, right? Because remember, you've become everything. You're, you're the all. So when you pull that veil back and look, what you see there is yourself. And I don't mean that in a literal way. I don't mean that you, you know, I'm tripping and I'm, and I'm, imagining somehow my, my, my reflection or something, what, what I'm saying is that there is nothing apart from yourself. There's, there's nothing in that experience outside of you. So when you see the object of your experiences, whatever that is, is the same thing that you are. And it's very, very weird. It's powerful. It's pleasurable. It, you know, it, it's, it's, it's amazing, but it's like nothing you've ever experienced before. And, and, you know, I think in a good way. Yeah, um, so there's a strange and powerful realization that you are um, the thing behind your perceptions. You are the thing behind your perceptions. So think about that for a minute. All right, so so here's where I want to go next. We spent the whole beginning part of this conversation talking about how there's all these things to our uh, experience that we are invisible to us, things that are there that we don't see, um, and uh, we can't really trust our, our perceptions that tell us kind of the truth about the world or about reality because there's more to it than we're really able to, to, to notice. So why is it that um, something like a mystic experience should be, should be trusted when our ordinary perceptions can't be trusted? You know, if, if I can't say that my, my perceptions uh, tell me the truth about the world, why am I going to rely on this other type of experience, this mystic experience? Isn't that just like anything else? Isn't it just like the, the color red we were talking about before? Now, I think it's true. Anybody who has a mystic experience is not the same experience. I mean, people have, you know, the varying experiences with it. Um, I've had several different types of that experience. Um, so it's not the same for everybody. So why, why is that something that we can trust when I can't, when I can't trust any of my other perceptions, uh, except for, you know, I think therefore I am like Descartes said, and th this W. Stacy fell at, at Princeton. He says, he says, you know, well, basically this, we, we've been discussing how perception is basically illusion. And this is something that in Buddhism, they call they call Maya. And so for in Buddhism, they literally say that the world is illusion. Um, so that's what kind of what we, what we've been talking about. 
Stacy says, we can rely on our intuition to tell whether an experience is valid, especially a religious feeling. And the reason is that he says that we all have that kind of faculty built into us. We all have the capability of having this, what he calls a religious intuition. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, what, what is intuition? I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of a hippy dippy thing to say, um, intuition. Um, but we all, but we all think about this in certain ways. Like, you know, I have a, I have a good feeling about this or, you know, I have a bad feeling about this person. We say stuff like that. I mean, that's what we mean. We have some feeling um, that doesn't seem to be coming from from the world. It seems to be coming from inside of us. That's telling us something about uh, the world. Um, and you know, we, we may have uh, we may have all felt that you know, like somebody's somebody's watching you, and you kind of your hair stands up on the back of your neck, that that kind of a thing. Um, some people will say, uh, like my sister will say this, that you know, she'll call me from time to time on the phone, and she'll ask me if I'm okay. She's like, you know, I just had this feeling that maybe you were, you, you know, you, something was wrong. This is what I mean. We, we talk about this all the time, that we do seem to have this, this intuition. Um, whether we trust that or not, it's something that we do seem to have, and people talk about it all the time. So Stacy says basically that intuition, it, it's a method of understanding that lies behind our sense experience. And it informs our consciousness of the, the kind of immaterial meaning behind our experiences. So that meaning, whatever that is, is associated with the thing behind our perceptions. Um, so put it, put it, put it a different way. He says, you know, our senses tell us, you know, what our perceptions of the world are, but our intuitions, on the other hand, they hint at that ultimate reality behind our perceptions. Um, he uses an analogy uh, of a sad song, and I think this is probably better than the ones I was giving you earlier about you know having a good feeling about something or a bad feeling about someone. Um, this analogy is basically straightforward. So you know, remember, imagine a time when you listen to a song without lyrics, like a like a symphony or a classical piece of music or something like that. You hear a song and it and it's sad and it makes you sad, and you can feel the sadness in the song. You can feel the sadness in the song. So it's not something you're hearing. It's not, it's not part of the notes. It's not in the silence in between the notes. It's, it's coming from this song in, in a way that it's hard to describe. But you know what I mean. You listen to that song and you know this is a sad song. So what is it that tells you it's sad? And Stacy says, that's your intuition. So this is the kind of thing we're talking about. So I'm going to read a quote directly from Stacy now, um, he, and it goes like this. He says, Any proposition about God would involve the conceptualization of that which is above all concepts. But religious symbolism is not, on this account, mere metaphor, because that which is symbolized is not a proposition about God, but the direct apprehension of His presence in religious or mystic intuition. Okay, so he, he's basically saying here that when you have that mystical experience, um, when you have that mystical experience, you don't. There's nothing about that that tells you anything about God necessarily, but it does give you this inability to deny the existence of it, because because you you had become that thing in the experience. You were that your yourself. 
So the mystic experience is, is like the definitive intuition uh, that there really is an ultimate reality behind our perceptions. Because in that experience, you became that ultimate reality. You can't deny that it exists any more than you can deny your own existence. So this is the position that having the mystic experience puts you in. And so what Stacy's saying about, you know, uh, that making any proposition about God, like having any knowledge about God, uh, is impossible because God is beyond concepts. So how can you conceptualize that? Um, so I want to talk about this beyond all concepts business because I think it's really important. So how can someone who's had a mystic experience, so somebody who's temporarily become God, for lack of a better word, how can that person be unable to share it or, or even to describe it to you? And I want, I want to use an analogy for this uh, because there's something about there's something about God that, that is unknowable. There's, you know, there's something about that ultimate reality that is unknowable. So we're going to have to use an analogy here and let our intuition kind of, kind of flush it out. So I'm going to use my analogy that I came up with here. It's, and it's simple. It's just imagine somebody painting uh, a canvas, you know, they've got their, uh, they've got their paint there. Um, they're putting it on this canvas kind of thicker and darker, um, one color over top of the next. And they're doing that over and over and over again. And as they do that, the colors change, the colors get darker, and you've all done this with uh, pain or with, you know, markers or crayons or something. You, you, see, you know what happens if you don't stop doing that. If you keep layering colors on top of each other, eventually what you're left with is black. And anybody looking at that picture, when you ask them what color it is, is going to tell you there's no color there at all. It's black. Um... Jordan Peterson, who we've talked about a few times, he used an analogy that I like even better, so I'm going to give it to you as well. He said, imagine um, every symphony that's ever been written. Um, imagine them recorded over top of each other and then played back to you. So every single symphony that's ever been written played back to you all at once. That what you would hear is static. You would hear no music at all. And this is what I'm getting at. Um, the idea that ultimate reality or, or God is beyond concepts comes from this idea that God is everything all at once. He's all possible things layered on top of one another. And the kind of end result of that is sort of nothing at all. Okay? It's very weird. We're going to circle back to that. So let's imagine... So let's imagine the ultimate reality in the same way. Let's imagine God as the potential for all possible things taken as a whole. And when you do that, the everything becomes nothing. The all colors become black. The every symphony becomes static. You see what I mean? So there's this way in which God is everything and nothing. There's a way in which he exists and doesn't exist. And this is a very strange part of it, and it comes through, it comes through like dynamite in the in the uh, mystic experience. Um, it's kind of what the whole experience surrounds. It's like being nothing and everything simultaneously. So, so if we imagine, you know, the all, if we imagine God is everything all at once, the potential for everything that's possible. This is what we. This is what we're looking at. We're looking at something that is everything. So nothing exists apart from it or outside of it. There's nothing there to compare it to or contrast it to. So there's not really any way of having knowledge about it. There's no, 
There's no observer there to look at the thing and say what it is, to observe what it is, because it's the only thing that exists. Okay, there's no differences, there's no limitations. There's nothing that you can use to separate it from anything else. So it becomes everything and nothing. And what's strange about this is that whole object-subject thing, those become one. It's not just me and the things in my, in my life. It's, it's me and the things in my life as one thing. So this object and subject you know, difference goes away. So there's nothing outside of it to know or observe it. Um, and that's, that's why it's such an unknowable thing. You know, the all contains all possible properties. It's, it's, it's every opposite together. It's like unifying everything. So we can think about, um, we can think about that as life and death together. You know, what is that? I know what life is. I know what death is. But what, what is life and death together? What, what is that? Well, it's kind of nothing. They kind of cancel each other out. Same thing with good and evil. You know, God is, in this idea, God is not good or evil. He's good and evil together. What is that? Well, it's kind of nothing. So it's, it's every opposite united. So, so what about the material world? What about the stuff that we experience every day? You know, that's something that I'm going to call being. And so what's, what's the opposite of being? That's something I would call non-being. And we'll have to describe that because it's, you know, it's kind of an unusual idea. So God is both life and death, good and evil, both being and non-being. And when you take those things together, you kind of get you kind of get nothing. And so let's talk about that a little bit. So non-being is what you become in the mystic experience. That's the thing outside of your perceptions, whatever that is. Okay. It's the unknown part of ourselves. That's what Carl Jung would say. That that. Non-being is the unknown part of ourselves. It's, it's, it's the unconscious in, in Jungian terms. It's the part of us that, that is part of us, but it remains invisible. Okay? It's what, um, what, what Kyle was talking about in the Psychedelics podcast when he was talking about Aldous Huxley, and he, he quoted um, the word Aldous Huxley uses for this, and he calls it the, the unfathomable mystery so we, we can call it non-being, we can call it the unfathomable mystery, we can call it whatever you want. But Jung calls it the collective unconscious. And what I would say again is it is the no color from which all possible colors can emerge. And to the observer, it's, it's no color at all. So it's the, un, it's the unknown part of ourselves. Um, and if you don't believe that there is an unknown part of yourself, if you don't believe that there's more to you than kind of you're aware of, then I'm just going to ask you a couple questions and think about this for a little while. Where, where do your interests come from? Where do your ideas come from? Where do your, where do your dreams come from? Do you have any idea? So I'm sitting here talking to you about God and religion and all this stuff, and, and I told you before, this is something that goes back way back to the beginning of my childhood. I mean, I, I've always been obsessed with this stuff in a way. It, it's always sort of been like the most interesting topic for me, and I gravitate towards it immediately. Um, very few people in my life um, appreciate that, right? So, you know, not a lot of people want to talk about this sort of stuff with me. The question is, 
why does this interest me so much, but other people it doesn't? Where did that come from? There's nobody in my family ha- has these interests. Uh, you know, it's not something that was taught to me. It's something that sort of just, you know, emerged from my spirit, you know, for lack of a better word. It's, it's always been there. Did that come from outside myself? Is it, is it imposed on me somehow? I don't, I don't think so. I think it's always been there. It's, it's the part of myself where these interests come from that I'm just not aware of. It's some part of myself that is invisible to me. Again, this is why Jung calls that the unconscious. Um, and that leads into kind of where your dreams come from. You, you have these images in your dreams, these messages you might get or feelings you might get from your dreams. Where do they come from? They don't necessarily have any connection to your actual life. You know, you can say there are electrical impulses in your brain, there are rapid eye movement, there are all that sort of thing, but that doesn't tell me anything at all about why you're seeing what you're seeing. Why is there a story or a goal or, or something going on in that dream? Where does it come from? How about my ideas? What about, what about a novel idea? Something just dawns on me. I have a eureka moment. I have a, I have a new idea. Where did that come from? I can't even tell you because it just kind of dawned on me. Where did that come from? Did it come from outside of myself? I don't think so. I think that is the unknown part of myself. And if you let, let yourself think about that for more than five seconds, you'll understand that there absolutely is more to yourself than you have, than, than you, have you know, uh, awareness of. And I think that this explains kind of the atheists and the agnostics who have a conviction that, um, that if God, that, that God doesn't really exist, let's say, um, uh, and, but this doubt can ultimately be put to rest by having the mystic experience. So because it's unknowable to us, because it's this invisible part of ourselves, it's easy for people to say it doesn't exist because it's not something that you can really have knowledge of. You can't really know it, but you can experience it. You can become it. And that's what this mystic experience is all about. So I think this is probably a good place to kind of wrap up. Um, what I want to be able to do with these, um, with these solo podcasts going forward is to look at things like, like how religion developed from these type of mystic experiences. Um, I've got all kinds of interesting quotes from, from the Bible and the Tao Te Ching and the Upanishads and these different holy books from all, all over the world that we can talk about in the context of a psychedelic or mystic experience. Um, the cave paintings, the kind of ancient cave paintings from, from Europe and Asia, um, the v- Venus figurines that were carved, you know, 15, 20, 30,000 years ago. There's all sorts of things we can talk about in the context of, um, of the mystic experience. Uh, so we'll do that. And then I also want to talk about uh, what the mystic experience can tell us about kind of our deepest nature and the nature of reality as a whole. So what, what can we tease out from those experiences kind of about the truths about the ultimate reality? Is there anything more there that we can talk about? And spoiler, yes, there is. There's a, a tremendous amount that I'm excited to talk about with you. So that'll be uh, on our next solo podcast. Um, I'll try to do that sooner rather than later for you guys. And I hope you keep listening. Thanks for, uh, thanks for your time.